Uh, good morning. Good to see you. Still look a little light out there to me for numbers. I uh, would first off just like to thank everyone that has sent cards and things. I guess it's been kind of a, uh, I've been kind of off beat, I guess, a little here the last couple weeks, but uh, uh, hopefully things will get back to normal. But I do appreciate your, your cards, and I'm sure Carol and all of my family do. And so thank you very much. And as far as my dad is concerned, it's, you know, it's, it's a loss for ourselves, not a loss for him. And sometimes we forget that's the goal. And some that quite often doesn't uh, seem to enter our brains as much. It's, uh, sometimes I think we think heaven's on earth. At the same time, earth can be a scary place. And so I'm going to start this morning with a long reading. So I apologize for that at the beginning, but I think it's important. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3 and follow along and whatever version you might have this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. We're kind of right finally getting to the, I would almost call it the crescendo or to the core of, of, of Ephesians as we read these verses, especially when we get to verses 9 and 10. It'll take a little explanation, so hopefully you'll bear with us in all this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, indeed if you have heard of the stewardship that God's gr- of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I write, wrote before in brief. In referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. I appreciate the words and scripture read at the Lord's Supper, kind of obviously Ephesians chapter 2, so it fits quite well, and also even the words in the prayer, they fit quite well with this lesson. When I sat down to write this lesson, one of the first things... (sighs) <sighs> what's going on is it's, you know, it's every week, I guess, you know, I, I can only take so much news each week. And if, if you're one of those people that's glued to that box or to that station, you know, 10 hours a day, I, I feel for you. There's, you know, I'm sure there's medication we could give you. Uh, usually an hour is way beyond my tolerance level. A half an hour, they just start repeating themselves. But the news has been bad lately, hasn't it? 
shootings, political fights, stock market crisis, crimes against one another, a lot of horrible moral crisis. You know, the entertainment tonight, they actually smile when they tell you about all the horrible moral things that are going on in this world. And sometimes when all this happens, you and I come together for shelter from the storm. And I understand that. And I look forward to seeing Bob and Mary on Wednesdays. You know, it's just good. I look over there. There they are. You know, you know how Bob is. He does usually a couple somersaults and a cartwheel on his way in the building. You know, and he just, you know, hobbles in here the best his back will allow him. But I, it, it, it makes me feel good to see those two. It makes me feel good when the young people come and sit around the, the dining room table on Tuesday evenings at my place. It gives my hope a boost. And I love having a family that worships God. And I know that I have a son in Nashville and a daughter in, in Arkansas and, and all that extends from out of that, that, that we're on the same page. We're bonded together in Christian values and life. It's a shelter from the storm. I really am confident that when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, they have that same sentiment. Because they are coming out, and that's one of the hard things we have in our generation to relate to, because we see things going this way. Uh, with the Ephesians, it was already at the bottom. And so when they joined Christ, they saw them their lives rising above what was in this world and rising above the ugliness. They saw... A place of refuge. A place where you can hide and get away, if, if not necessarily hide, but just get away and to break from society, get away from the Roman world. It was an ugly world. Get away from the Roman values, the Ephesian values, the Greek values, things that were basically destroying society all over the place. And no matter how bad things get on the outside, there's always hope on the inside. The problem for these Ephesians is it felt like it was coming to knock on their doors. Now, not, not literal doors, although perhaps. You know, not church buildings or anything like that. But there were signs that things were not getting better for them as Christians. Things were getting worse. So you come together for a refuge from the storm, and the storm seems to be coming inside your own lives. Paul's in prison. And that was a huge blow to a lot of them. Because when your hero is in prison, how old does it stand for you? You know, and he's spending like two years down in Caesarea in prison. And it's amazing how, you know, Luke covers that in his, his book of Acts in just a matter of a few verses. But it's two years out of the life of Paul, and he writes many of these prison epistles, as we call them, during that time period. And the question you might ask, how much can we take as a church before that church is no longer the shelter from the storm? And when you bring that to us in your own personal life and your own choice of faith, and I, I want to keep us away from individualism here as much as possible. You'll see that as, as we go through these 10 verses. But how much of a health crisis can you endure before your faith is no longer that refuge? How bad does poverty have to get before the church just seems to be something that gets in the way? How bad does a family crisis need to be before I just get up and quit and go my own direction? 
And problem is because we have this as a view of the gospel, and this is what Paul's fighting against throughout this entire letter, but in particular this, this one chapter. I'm afraid we have bought into the wrong story about the gospel. It isn't that you're believing a lie, because yes, I do see the church as a shelter. I do see this as a place where I can just kind of take a deep breath. I also see the church, when I gather with you people, as a place where I gain strength in order to go back out into that world. But the lie is that we focus on one particular aspect of the promise, and I think sometimes we forget the real story of the cross. This past Wednesday, it was kind of pointed out a little bit. We were going through 1 Timothy, and Myrna pointed out a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And he says to the Timothy, he says, Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And what Paul is saying there in that one verse is also what Paul is going to be saying in this entire letter, that what we are and what we are doing is not just about pie in the sky one day it's profitable in this present life our lives in the kingdom of God are not just about someday they're about here now they're about today it's not a promise of careless bliss and Paul writes that to Timothy you know, Paul had been in and out of so many prisons. Uh, apparently, probably in First Timothy was one of the few times he wasn't in prison when he's writing. But he'd been in and out of prisons, in and out of beatings, being stoned. You know, this is one of the few guys that got to, you know, uh, we went on a, a gondola, what, not the gondola, the, 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 uh, what do they call them, the uh, cable car rides there. And, and when we were in Portugal, Paul had his own cable car ride, I guess, getting out of the city of Damascus. Lowered down over the side in a basket with a rope keep alive the reality that Paul wants us to understand about the gospel and go back to what Jesus preaches and see that it's the same look at what Peter says and we'll see that it's the same the gospel is not about shelter from the storm the gospel is about living the message of the cross a message that is light to a world of darkness it is light to that financial crisis that's going on. It is light when there are wars and violence taking place. The gospel and the message of the cross is light in that darkness when your family looks like it's melting down and coming apart. Those unrelenting health struggles. The cross is light in the face of death. Paul kind of has the same message, and uh, this is just one example of how he preaches this. And, and when Paul says, okay, let's stop and talk about what really matters, uh, this is just one example. He does it in several different places. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preached to you, and which you also received, and in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast. Which to the word for which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So it goes a long way to say, this is what I taught you, this is what you heard, this is what you believe, and this is what you're living. And I want to remind you of that. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, he goes into a big discourse on, on the resurrection, doesn't he? And the kind of life you live because you know what's going to happen. But what he says is, this has always been the center of everything I've taught you, everything I've explained to you, everything I've called you to be, and everything that we will live to be. Everything. It's the story we live. Everyone in this room, well, maybe I'm overspeaking, but I believe everyone in this room believes in the resurrection. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The question for us this morning is how does that change everything? Is this a message that just says someday things will be okay, that the kingdom of God, you know, will someday take effect? But the kingdom message that Jesus preached, the kingdom message that Paul preached, and that we live is rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection. And basically, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, one of the hardest things about living the Sermon on the Mount is it's not practical for life under the sun, as Solomon would put it. But because of the cross, it's the only thing that really makes sense. Because of the cross, the Sermon on the Mount would become the natural choice of life. If we really do believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You know, if, if we don't live the Sermon on the Mount, what that really reflects, I don't want to say it reflects your lack of faith. I don't want to say it's that you're just a bad person. I think it really reflects that we don't have a proper understanding of what the basic message of the cross is. Paul in Philippians, he tells it like this. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when you go through that verse and go through all the Philippians, Paul is not talking about, I'm going to suffer now so I can have some gain later in life. He is speaking of about a life that on both sides of the grave clings to the message of the empty grave. And so when we get to Ephesians here in chapter 3, he begins by, the first thing he recognizes is that threat to the shoulder in the storm that the Ephesians are facing. You know, the, their faith is eroding a little bit. Two years in prison can do a lot. And what period of time during this imprisonment, I don't know. Did Paul write this shortly after he was taken prisoner? Had he been there a year? Was it getting time to stand before Agrippa and... and Festus? I don't know. But he recognizes that they're a little nervous about the changes in their faith and the, the, the attacks on their faith. And so he reminds them of the story. Matter of fact, it's the same thing when you go over to Romans chapter 8. He says it like this. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he takes six chapters in Ephesians to say the same thing. And he makes this point. If we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. And so now he's going to take that idea and that theme as he goes through Ephesians, and he's not going to apply it to you individually. He's going to apply it to us as the church. It's always one of these struggles of the words. When you translate in English, we're kind of limited. When I say you, you don't know who am I talking about, you know, 
Jeremy, or am I talking about everybody? Well, in, in the Greek, it's pretty plain that those yous are plural, or they're singular. And when he writes this letter, he's saying everything here applies to us together. And he will not let you have an individual faith where you walk by yourself alone and think that you're honoring God. So he says there in his very opening verse, he goes, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's kind of interesting because if you read that, I don't know, Paul would have gotten in trouble with my English teacher. Uh, repeatedly. Uh, John 2. John's, their grammar is atrocious. Because he starts the sentence off and he, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. For what reason? Do you know that you actually have to go all the way to verses 9 and 10 before he, before he completes that sentence? Because all of a sudden Paul's mind wanders and he goes off and he starts talking about other things. He sidetracks to remind him of his place in the kingdom. And so he says, well, I wrote, write this for the sake of you Gentiles. And what he's saying here is kind of what was reflected in the prayer at the Lord's Supper, that they have brought the Jew and the Gentile, the, the slave and the free man, man and woman, everybody under one banner and one body, one kingdom. We get to that in chapter 4, don't we? When it says there's one Lord, one body, what's he talking about? He's talking about we're all in this together. You know, a lot of times we take and have our own little denominational arguments, and Paul says, that's not where I was going. But what a message. It says basically what he's going to say is the gospel, the kingdom, is no longer an exclusive group for Hebrews only. But it's for everyone who has faith, regardless of their past, their family, their race, regardless of their nationality, they are all called into the kingdom. And then he, remember I said he got sidetracked a little bit. And then he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so he's kind of jumped along and kind of explained a whole lot here in these verses, you know, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and, and I've been made a minister to, to this. And then in verse 8, it's, but he gets to me, of all people. And, and when we read this, we kind of think, no, Paul, you're not the least. What, you know, if we put up a chart and we start rating, rating saints as we know them, surely he makes the top ten, right? You know, maybe Abraham and Moses get ahead of him. Now Jesus' own category, son of God. But, you know, the, and for the church, who are the top saints? And he already referred to over in Galatians as uh, Peter, James, and John as the pillars of the church. But then he looks at himself and he says, and to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me. And this is important because he's talking about himself, but he's also talking, he's calling you to look inside your own soul. Who, we won't have you raise your hand. It might be the only time I can get a bunch of hands to go up in the air. But who here is worthy? Better yet, who here says, not me, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. 
Well, before we look at yourself, was Paul being disingenuous here? Was Paul just uh, well, false humility? Or is Paul actually being honest? And we've got to be a little careful in this because if you're like me, Paul's writings are, what's the word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. When Paul says something, I assume it's true. And when he says to me, the least of the saints, maybe he's not being, oh, shucks, not me. Maybe he's being 100% honest. Because I think what's really going on here is that Paul is showing the grand distinction between my accomplished value and how much I'm worth or God's grace. Because he looks at himself and says, not me. I'm worth zero. It's God's grace. I'm just not good enough. And too often when we say that, what do we mean? You know, you ask somebody to lead a prayer. Ah, no, they start self-loathing, loathing. And all of a sudden, they can't do God's work because they have made the judgment that they are not worthy, they are not good enough, they are not smart enough. In other words, God's will becomes second place. Because you've got to ask yourself, what's God's will? I'm going to sidetrack myself here. I said, Paul gets sidetracked, so do I. I remember, and if I've told you before, I've told you probably 50 times about the first time I led singing and how horrible I did. And how I walked out of that building uh, without talking to one single person. I was about 15 at the time. But I made a vow to myself that day. I said, you know what? If these people are dumb enough to ask me to do it, I'm going to do it. And they kept asking. And I kept doing. And I kept learning. And I kept improving. Because it's not my ego that's important. It's God's will. One of the biggest challenges, and again, I am getting sidetracked, I'm sorry, but one of the biggest challenges we have in Churches of Christ internationally, starting here, is men rising to the occasion of leadership. Oh, it's a horrible problem in a lot of mission fields, but it's a problem everywhere. I'm not good enough. Sometimes you don't speak even to your own family about God's will because one of them is going to call you a hypocrite. Because they know what you were and what you did last week. Paul would not allow that to stop him. To me, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given. And the grace, what are you talking about grace there? We have such a horrible understanding of that word. He's saying God's favor was given to me. And what was God's favor? Forgiveness? Not here. The favor that God gave him, the, the goodwill that God gave him was, Paul, i got a job for you to preach to the Gentiles. That's what that word grace there is referring to in this particular passage. To me, the very least of the saints, God said, I've got something for you to do. By my power, by my grace, you're going to preach. Whatever you think about yourself is not nearly as important of what God's purpose is for your life. After all, it is his kingdom, right? And not yours. So we have this kingdom, as Paul refers to it. Unfathomable and riches. Notice Paul guiding your eyes, not just 
unfathomable riches, but unfathomable riches of Christ. We have a story to live. And it's the story of the cross, the story of the grave, and the story of the resurrection. So he says that's the message that we're trying to get out. And keep reading. You've got to put all these verses together as you do this. Paul wants you and I to understand that the church, God's group, the fellowship of the living, we are the message of the gospel. And so he has this little verse here, and this is kind of this one verse, and it's going to, verse 9 kind of introduces verse 10, and it's also going to introduce a lot of things we're going to talk about in chapter 4, 5, and 6. But he says, and part of my task, part of my Stewardship as an apostle is to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which is for ages has been hidden in, the, in God who created all things. Now, it's a tough verse, I understand that, and it's not always translated too well. Matter of fact, uh, some of the verses say the plan instead of the administration. King James, I'm not sure what they were doing, they just skipped over the word entirely that was written there in Greek and ignored it completely. But when he says, I'm here to bring about the administration of the ministry, what is he talking about? The administration, or the, uh, another way of saying it is the, the dispensing. You know, like you have a dispensary, how you're going to give it up. Basically, what Paul is saying, one of my tasks for you Ephesians is to get everything right with the church. This church needs a plan, an administration, a dispense. It needs... You know, it, it needs some way in order for us to be together and understand that in spite of the differences, uh, we're all united together. And how's that going to work? So later on, he's going to talk about relationships between men and women. He's going to talk about relationships between parents and children. He's going to talk about relationships between masters and slaves. He's going to talk about relationships between leadership and those who follow. It's the administration of the mystery. And the mystery, uh, that's just the gospel. The only reason it's a mystery is because people haven't heard it. And what Paul is emphasizing in this entire letter is the way they're going to hear it is by watching you. When we do it right, the mystery is revealed to the world. That's the tricky part. Now, if I was just to give you verses 9 and 10 to read and, ask, and no other part of the Bible and ask you for your explanation of those verses, I'd probably get a whole lot of different spiritually sounding, biblically sounding explanations. But these two verses, verses 9 and 10, are the core of the entire letter. And what this letter is about is we, together, God's group, the church, living the story. That we together live this message of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Paul is plainly telling the Ephesians is that they are living the story of the gospel. They're not just learning about the story of the gospel and they're not just thinking about it. one day they'll, you know, for now we hide from the storm and one day everything will be okay as all tears will be wiped from our eyes. He wants you to know that you are living it. And no one in Ephesians is an independent believer. And a lot of times we look at it that way, you know. You ever, do you ever refer to the church as those people? 
Or you ever come up to an elder and, and say, that church of yours, you know, you know. I always remember King Saul. Remember when King Saul talked to Samuel? And he's having a lot of troubles because King Saul never did anything right. And King and Samuel gets on him and says, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, I don't know what I'm going to do with you anymore. Very loose paraphrase, obviously. And then Saul says, pray to your God. King Saul, king of Israel, king of God's people. And he says to Samuel, pray to your God. Is that not your God also, Saul? There are no independent believers. We are joined together in the life of Jesus Christ. And when we live united, intertwined, supporting one another, sometimes challenging one another, and working and fighting side by side in this world of darkness, we are what verse 10 is going to tell us, the manifold wisdom of God. So he says that. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God... Oh, we're way behind here, aren't we? So that the manifold wisdom of God may now, might now be made known through the Bible. Okay, let me read it again. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the preacher. No. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made now be made known through the church. The assembly. God's people. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly in the heavenly. Paul, when he speaks of the administration of the of the mystery, again, I know it's a little complicated terms, we're not used to breaking down that much. What he is saying is, I'm writing to you. He says, I'm trying to teach you how to set up shop. I guess that's the best way I know how to put it in our own modern culture. We're so different. We're so unique. Yet we're so united. And things like that, they don't happen naturally. Do you ever know that? You know, they, they, they don't happen naturally. It takes dedication. It takes commitment. It takes direction. It really takes God-centered organization. When we do it right, when we follow God's will and God's guidance, his word, then the, the manifold, the, the tap, tapestry, this interweaving, and that's, that's actually a good way that word there, I don't know what your version says, most of them say manifold, the, the complexity. But what it is is when it all comes together, all the different aspects, all the different colors, all the different whatever, the manifold wisdom of God is seen. It's not seen in doctrines. It's the diversity and the unity that we have with one another. You'll leave here today, and we're going to go to so many different directions, so many different types of lives. But when we're doing God's will together as a church, his wisdom, his manifold wisdom is seen. When we do it right, when lives unite, we become the manifold wisdom of God. And when we live the story, not just talk the story, his entire message of Ephesians is, you aren't here to hide from the storm, you're here to confront the darkness. We are that tapestry of God's will, God's plan, God's purpose for life as life was meant to be lived. We're not a refuge from the storm. 
How is it Jesus describes it? We're a light set on the hill. Jesus said it back this way in, in his Sermon on the Mount. You. Is that plural or singular there? It's plural. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He just called us a city, didn't he? Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, when I read that in Matthew, I guess I can look at that and say, Jesus is telling me, Mark, as an individual, Mark, you are the light of the world. Even though he used the plural, you there. But when you get to Ephesians, he says, you, we, are the manifold wisdom of God. We are that light of the world, the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Our lives all together organized not by just love, but by the very Spirit of God. Our good works, simply put, it calls us to have kingdom living as the core of who we are. Together. This is not like the movie theater where you pay your ticket and you sit in the air for two hours and you watch a movie and go your own way. We are the body of Christ. He's going to get into that in chapter 4, isn't he? Kingdom living. Now at this point, a good thing for you to do is go back and reread Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And understand it in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And understand it also as a description of the church. And what it means to live as the people of God. As God's group, as Christ's body, the church. We don't hide from the darkness. We confront the darkness as the kingdom of light. Not you individually. Uh, yeah, you got, you got to live the right life individually. I understand that. Galatians chapter 6, he says, bear one another's burdens. And then he turns around and says, each one must bear his own load. Individually, yes. Corporately, definitely. <clears throat> Do people see this building and say, hmm, another building bunch of religious people or do people see this body and say the kingdom of God is among us all this is possible because we not, don't only preach the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus we choose to live that story daily and we live it living in the same turmoil that the rest of the world has everything that Satan throws at everyone he throws at us too doesn't he storms are to be expected, but storms shall never rule. And we are the manifold wisdom of God. When we as a church dedicate ourselves to God's way as a family, together with one another, all because we know that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and was resurrected. And that event changes everything. It not only changes our hope for one day, it changes our purpose for now. And what is the church called? 
the body of Christ. What did the body of Christ do? It gave all for others. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you have not understood the church as that how being this vital, it's time you really go back and reread those stories. And what about your own individual life? Have you committed your life to Christ? You can't do that without also committing to the church. And you can't do any of it without surrendering in baptism. Saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And when you're buried, there's that death, burial, and resurrection again, right? When you're buried with Christ in baptism, you're raised to a newness of life. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. There's a power bound free, takes for you.